Good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much for dialing in um, and joining in this important conversation. Thank you to Hridayananda Maharaj and Krishna Devatit for choosing to discuss this vital topic, child protection, in this way. And thank you to Maharaj and his team for kindly, uh, kindly allowing us to host or moderate this on Maharaj's various platforms, in addition to Vedic Inquirer. As a moderator, I'll have a few questions from time to time that I might throw in, but will generally try to be unobtrusive and let the two of you explore various interrelated matters, such as how do we productively talk about such an emotionally charged issue as child protection? How do we balance justice and mercy and perhaps other considerations like public expectations when attempting to resolve child protection breaches? Perhaps we'll start with Krishna Devata. You're a Gurukul alumni, you're a mum and a long-serving advocate of child protection. Maharaj recently wrote an essay talking about the sort of constructive uh, debate uh, and so on. And I think you were keen to take up with him on a few points there. Sure. Well, um, first of all, I, I'm just uh, happy to speak to Maharaj again. So, you know, this is, uh, I guess, a modern miracle. I think it's been like 20 years, maybe we've seen each other in between sometimes. But, uh, you know, we've had a long-standing um, report and, um, you know, discussion, ongoing discussion about um, the society we live in. And um, I've always found that I was able to, like, speak candidly with Maharaj, so I wanted to invite you to speak about this topic because um, you know we can spend a, a long time uh, on social media but we are familiar with these uh, like what I call the our living room talks and I just thought that that mood um, of discussion just that we are family then and um, you know, having an opportunity to find some understanding. So, yeah, I just wanted to start by appreciating that, Marge, that you're willing to come to the table because, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure not many people would. So, at this point. so um, I, I wanted to pick up uh, about, I, about the article that you wrote or the essay you wrote because you talked about this, um, you know, Brahminical conduct and discourse. So um, I wanted to just uh, see if um, one of, uh, maybe Dhammadar, could you show us the four Varnas and four Ashrams? That I yes, just now finding it. <laughs> okay, hopefully that will come up any moment. Okay, so obviously this is a review for all of us, but uh, the four varnas and four ashrams, and uh, we can see clearly, Maharaj, like, so you would fall into the top lines, both lines, right? From Brahman Sanyas for your varna and ashram. But I would be very, like, wondering where exactly do I fit in this chart? Should I respond? I mean, please, Mark. <laughs> I think you're also at the top. I mean, you're. I mean, a Brahmin. I re because 
some there's actually some sannyasi in this con that thinks falsely that the women don't have varnas but of course it's nonsense because in the first chapter of bhagavad gita Arjun's whole concern is varna sankara which literally in sanskrit means varna mixing so if women didn't clearly have varnas you couldn't mix them and so and there's all kinds of names in the manu sangita like if a Brahmin lady marries a Kshatriya man or a Kshatriya lady marries a... You know, there's all kinds of names. And so my experience with you is that you're very intelligent and uh, principled. And uh, so I would think of you as a Brahmin. Okay. I understand that you would give me this, um, these kind of accolades, and I appreciate that. But I don't fit there, you know, in practice. I've never been treated that way. I mean, you know, I've been treated as a Vaishnava, but I mean, a Brahmin, I'm not Brahminically initiated. Um, and so maybe we can go to um, the next, the temple diagram. This is my experience. Okay. Oh, if I could, if I could just make Yeah, one. before that, sure, go ahead. Sure. And that is, um, I think we live in a in a in an age post-industrial post-sanity age where um people may not society including iskon frankly in greater society and even may not offer sincere souls the opportunity to do their very best yes there are all kinds of complications so i have always held you in high esteem and um so i um and you're a vaishnavi so so of course i you know i can't i don't want to say i know you better than you know yourself because that's you know that people <laughs> have it when someone tells you that but um yeah i i think as far as verminical initiation and everything there's so many factors there's so many factors that can lead one to a particular lifestyle a particular situation a particular situation vis-a-vis -a, -vis a spiritual movement or society and so when i see you i see all these excellent qualities that um are really independent of this or that situation brought on by circumstances and sense beyond our control okay thank you i appreciate that i i think um before we go to that next visual that i mentioned i i wanted to share with you um two distinct experiences with, within the iskan society um one of them is actually my first memory so i was about a year old and i was an infant and my parents were living in the berkeley temple right there on stewart street and um my first memory is being locked out of mongolard with my mother because uh, you know as a city street for whatever reasons the temple doors were locked at Mangalati. that's my first memory so one of my uh very also very early memories by the time i was three years old we were living in the philadelphia temple and uh, i remember distinctly by the by three years old. So these are very early formative years. Sanskaras. So uh, if you're familiar with the Philadelphia Temple, it's an old hotel with the long 
hallway corridors. And I found myself in the hallway alone, face to face with a sannyasi. And even at that age, I like wanted to disappear myself. I, I knew I was out of place and I didn't know how to navigate that, crossing that path. And I already knew I didn't have a place, I didn't belong there. But he was given preferential treatment and where I stood was secondary. I already knew that. So flash forward to February, 2020. This was the last time I was in Vrindavan. And you know, it's, it's a special, um, it's a special opportunity to attend Mangal Arti and the Holy Dham. So uh, I just, just also on a side note, there is a, some emergency work suddenly scheduled outside. So that's happening. If, I don't know if the audio is disturbing, but um, anyway, so I went to Mangal Arti and uh, you know, there's this gap time for Japa, time meditation time. So of course I remember there's no place for me in the temple room for Japa. So I went, I thought, okay, I remember Prabhupada's room. That's always usually a nice secluded place to chant. And I went in there and you could have imagined that I walked into like a men's restroom. It was into a what? A men's restroom, like the audible gas, okay? Like a, a experience of like, okay, I definitely shouldn't be here, okay? And then, but if you can imagine, it's five o'clock in the morning in India, okay? It's dark out, there's chokidars, there's literally nowhere else for me to go. So I'm at this, you know, so I'm walking around the whole temple compound and I finally come to the Balaram Hall. And there, there's many ladies and there are string garlands and talking. There's like a very jovial spirit. And then I look amidst all of the talking ladies and there's one sannyasi, very jolly, just talking to all of the ladies at this time. So I just want to make a, uh, a distinction that these messages of belonging and of place are given to us in a lot of different ways. So in that moment, I also knew that aside from protecting all of the men and their mind and their celibacy, we're we're, our whole society is organized around protecting celibate men. Okay, so my only choice was really for me to find my japa to leave the temple grounds. I, it, Go ahead. <laughs> that's kind of like appalling. I mean, not you or your story, but I mean, what you described. Let me tell you a story. 1974, I came to San Francisco to celebrate Rathiatra with Prabhupada and, of course, all the devotees. And so one day I was in Prabhupada's room and the temple president of San Francisco team was sitting there with Prabhupada, just the two of us with Prabhupada. And he was sort of bragging that the temple is so strict that uh, after Mongol Arti, the, you know, they don't let the women chant Japa in the temple, only the men chant Japa in the temple. Mm -hmm. 
And Prabhupada looked at him as if he were crazy. And uh, in a sense, he was. So <laughs> Prabhupada, Prabhupada said, like, why? Why do you do that? And, and of course, this temple president saw that, it, you know, he was, rather than getting Prabhupada's admiration, Prabhupada was really wondering about him. And so he said, well, because the men become agitated. And I remember Prabhupada became disgusted. And he said, if, the, if, the, if they're such fools that these men are agitated because a woman is chanting Hare Krishna in Krishna's temple, he said, Let, they should go to the jungle, they should go to the forest, let them leave. And, and so there's all these, if I can just speak frankly. Yeah, of course. Yes. I believe there's a lot of people in the Hare Krishna movement who imagine that they're strict followers of Prabhupada, but in some fundamental ways have really misunderstood Prabhupada. Yeah. And so I know I'm now acting as a guru in ISKCON. I won't do an infomercial, but so. What is about the guru in ISKCON? Sorry. I said I won't do an infomercial, you know, for my. Oh. Services. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I have. Okay, so the backhammering has started in my vicinity. Can you guys hear that, or is that? Just we can. We we can. You could probably mute yourself at least while you're not speaking. Okay, or something. I'm gonna. Do that. I I think I think. Yeah, I think you have a good microphone, and and even when the sound is going on, I can still hear you pretty well. So if you want to speak, please do so. I I think that okay. Here's my take: the real symptom of a spiritual leader, an advanced Krishna conscious person, is not that they strictly keep women away, or they sort of I don't know just dress and conduct themselves in a way to build a high cultural wall of separation to keep out the non-devotees or you know i think among neophytes that's taken as a sign of advancement but the real advancement is to see everyone as as krishna's eternal servant and so a man who cannot chant japa in a temple room with a woman is clearly a uh, a neophyte that really needs help so so I'm sorry if you, I mean, I, I feel very bad. I mean, to the extent that I represent ISKCON, I mean, I owe you lots of apologies. And uh, I think it's horrible you have those experiences like the Philadelphia caper. You know, I mean, I I don't want to, you know, brag, but I mean, if, if I am in a temple and I see a, a child, my first instinct is, you know, I just feel natural affection for the child. And, uh, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy, if I can just be honest, and a lot of nonsense with, with, with masquerades as advanced Krishna consciousness. And actually, I mean, if anyone knew you, mind you, this old song, like 59 by the teddy bears, to know, know, know him is to love him. So I mean, I, you know, I, I think anyone that actually knows you would be very fond of you and, and would appreciate you very much. <laughs> Maybe, maybe yeah. I can ask a quick bridging bridging question, yeah. if that's okay to you, Maharaj. Um, yeah, of one of the things that really grabbed me in your essay was the following uh, little paragraph. I have no intention of discouraging strong, robust debate on moral issues. 
such as punishment of devotee offenders. Rather, I seek to defend the necessary cultural conditions for Vaishnav debate to take place fairly. So this issue of cultural maturity, um, KD's mentioning here that what to speak of abuse, even just everyday participation, doesn't seem like an even playing field. It seems like some people have the full franchise and other people have to practically scrap to get the franchise. So I'm well, curious. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to comment quickly. It's interesting because, for example, in the modern political arena, say in America, uh, the, uh, the left controls most of the media, obviously except for Fox News, but the right tends to dominate YouTube. And then the, the left tends to be very influential in the universities, but the right kind of controls talk radio. And, and, and so they're like, you know, they each have their own battle stations. So, okay. so um, yeah, I, you go ahead, Katie. Okay, so back in our, back in the day, in our living room talks, a lot of it was, you know, we spent a lot of time with Shukantula and one of the crux of our focus at the time, we brought all the way to the GBC. We brought, we went all the way to Mayapur and we spoke in front of the GBC body and we spoke about Istagosti as we spoke about many, many times. But the reality is there's not freedom of speech in Iskon. It's an authoritarian model that depends on the leader to be kind and pious. So that's a lot of trust. They take a lot of public trust to um, have an authoritarian position. So that's where, you know, I have, I have uh, worked within the system and I've gone through the venues available to me to be the loyal opposition, which I've always said I was, you know, because Criticism, we, it's a really easy way also for many things to be silenced. So, um, you know, I've tried to very respectfully approach the GBC. And I didn't think it made one ounce of a difference 20 years ago or something about that. Not one difference. And so I really left for quite some time and you know, raised my children, and and I keep going back. I went back when I lived in New York. I went back to Berkeley, and I've been contributing to the uh, Rathyatra Festival for several years. But I actually have to admit, I quit that service, Maraj, because I feel like an abused woman going back over and over. Why should I keep going back to be told once again? And because those are just anecdotal stories, Maharaj, those are to illustrate in a personal way something that I'm sure in the comments you'll start, you could see a whole book of stories about the ways that the women have been disrespected. So that's just, that's not even to, that's like even a diversion point. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast just on that. But this is to illustrate the culture that we're operating within. Yeah, because absolutely. The, because when we silence the women and the mothers, there's a direct repercussion on the children. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely. If I could just say that, uh, I, you know, I'm sure you'll be encouraged to hear that the problem is actually worse than you stated it. In, in the sense that um, it's a fact. I mean, the women not being heard is a disaster. You know, every, I mean, the women are half of the society. They raise children, they raise the children and they, uh, if women are not respected and honored and appreciated, society will basically. Yeah, I please. just want to make a really important point that men also raise the children. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. And I was very fortunate. I had, I had a really. Oh, by the way, say hello to your parents for me. I will. <laughs> um, I, I had very, very good, loving parents, and I, and of course, the father and the mother. Absolutely right, but. What I wanted to say to you is that the GBC don't listen to me either. And so, I mean, I've had, I've had the experience just in the last year of three times uh, addressing the GBC properly, letters to the EC, on very important issues. And each time they were incapable of just even minimum courtesy. They were in there. I mean, I know many GBC men and I, many of them individually are nice. You know, they're nice people and they're friends. But when they meet together, something something goes very wrong. And like a distinction I want to make is that um, I don't think the GBC is illegitimate. There's a there's a difference between bad government or poor government or inept government and illegitimate government. So I, I don't I don't say the GBC is illegitimate, but I think objectively, clearly, they have major, major problems in dealing properly with the devotees of ISKCON. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, it's, it's me or you or, you know, gender, how long you've been in the Hare Krishna movement. I can't get I can't get common decency out of them. I mean, I mean to me, common decency is that when I write them a letter on a serious topic and objectively I'm giving them, you know, it's important and, and, and they, they don't answer me. If I just give one simple example, anecdotal. Um, because I created this, uh, anyway, whatever it is, Krishna West. Um, and so, um, and so because Prabhupada had said we should study the Catholic Church, see how they organize things in terms of orders, you know, Jesuits, Franciscans, Dominicans, and so on. And because I knew even some conservative GBCs were in favor of that, I thought, well, we want to apply to become an order with an ISKCON. I thought it was to the advantage of the conservatives because it would kind of domesticate Krishna West. So you kind of know where it is and there'd be boundaries and so on. And so I wrote a letter to the chairman and I said, you know, we want to apply. He said, well, we'll form a committee and discuss it. And uh, I didn't hear back. I had to write again after a while. And then, I, and then I was told that they wanted to discuss it. I'm the GBC Emeritus. I've actually, I actually know a lot more about the history of religion just from a scholarly point of view than they do. But they had decided that I should not be part of the discussion. So that whole thing is you just, in other words, I, and, and I had to go chase them. Even to they didn't have the courtesy. First of all, they didn't have the courtesy to, in to include me in the discussion. They didn't have the courtesy to tell me what they were doing. And a year has passed and they haven't had the courtesy to, to say anything. And it's not just that issue. There were other issues. I wrote them a letter saying that I was willing to spend a considerable amount of money to save one of 
Prabhupada's farms in North America, but it would be a Krishna West Center. Couldn't even get an answer. So just, I mean, when I get letters, I really try very hard to answer them within 24 hours or at least by the next day. I really try hard to do that because I feel I owe that respect to people that write me. So, so this I, brings up a sorry. Yes. Well, well, just to conclude, and then I'd be happy to hear from you. I, I, I think if we're going to be honest here, I would say many of the GBC are nice people. I think they're you know trying to serve Prabhupada sincerely. Some of them, I think, actually, I mean, I think have problems of the type of you know they have serious problems, but they're not men. I think there's a few who actually, anyway. So, but I, but I think. Uh, but ISKCON has a problem. We do not have excellent leadership. Yeah. We do not have, ISKCON does not have inspiring leadership. ISKCON does not have leadership that pays serious attention to the people governing. ISKCON does not have leadership that really feels that we're the servants of the people. And, and I mean, we just don't have that. I'm not saying they're illegitimate. I'm not saying their private lives are bad people. I know as many of them are very sincere, but as a body, and you can study this because the GBC is an oligarchy and there's a lot of good social science on the behavior and the problems with oligarchies. And the GBC, as I pointed out in the paper I wrote on this, fits very neatly into the profile of an oligarchy that, that often cares more about protecting itself than actually helping people. And for example, I know many zones where there is just awful leadership at a GBC level, whether it's just real incompetence where everything sort of falls apart, whether it's a GBC who's a bully and 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 just sort of bullies the people in the zone. And if you're not with him, you get punished and, and you know, there's no diversity. You're, you know, there, there's no question of following Prabhupada's statement that um, that ISKCON is meant to train devotees to be independently thoughtful, not they depend on one person. There are temple presidents where they have what I called in my paper pockets of tyranny within ISKCON, like little banana republic dictatorships. Mm -hmm. And and if you ask the simple question, is the GBC actually actively monitoring, let, let's say, quality control? Are they making sure that the representatives are governing well their zones, that devotees are treated properly, that people have the freedom, the independence, the Prabhupada mandated, that people feel respected, people feel heard. Uh, no, they do. there is no quality control. So if you're a GBC zonal secretary and you don't flagrantly like break the principles or rebel against the GBC or you know do something really scandalous, then basically you can be pretty much incompetent or a bully for the rest of your life. And no one's ever going to tap you on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. and, if you're, and if you're a temple president, you can be a bully and you can do all kinds of things and you can go on for the rest of your life. So, is, you know, we often used to say that, you know, ISKCON is a confederation, bad choice of words, because, you know, the American South and the Civil War is a confederation. Yeah. yeah confederation technically in political philosophy means that power resides primarily in the regions and the regions delegate power to the center. Right. So. Well, that's the reason why I put the temple presidents as one of the temple domes in terms of the high, the highest uh, positions. Let's so, see if we can display that, uh, Ananda Leela. Sure. 
Thank you. So this was just a little drawing I did to try to put together some of my thoughts and you know where we're leading to about spiritual abuse because abuse also uh, really uh, is fostered within these kind of systems, family systems and hierarchical. We have institutionalized ourselves around uh, an abuse culture. This is this is what the diagram is. Um, really, it's showing that the whole society is built on disciples, families, women and children, and it's dependent on the public walking in the doors to the festival, the preaching program, the you know supporting. We, we are dependent on that public support as in a religious organization. So you can see that generally speaking, of course, there's definitely women who make their way up this system. And I know of at least one woman who gets to be the exception that makes the rule, who's a temple president, but, um, and maybe there's a couple. But as a whole, you can see that this is like really a, a male-dominated system. And I'm, I, I know that people demonize me as a feminist, but uh, let's just say, I'm not even talking about equality. I'm talking about partnership in Krishna consciousness. Men are generally told that getting married is Maya or, and women are told they must be chaste wives. So there's like, you know, the equation doesn't add up on a lot of levels here. So the thing is, the problem here is that the, then the family institute, the family is weakened by this model because the family are, is um, attachments and material and mundane, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we are really encouraged to be this monastic. I mean, really, sometimes I get the impression that like all the women and children could just walk away and like the celibate men would be happy about that. But this system creates a problem, a lot of problems. One is that as soon as a child is abused, this is actually the fundamental foundation of society, the child. And the rights of the child are so fundamental that this is the easiest measure for us to measure integrity, effectiveness, you know, respect and devotion. Krishna himself is a child most of the time when we work with him. And uh, so many Vaishnav children, even in the Vedas, from look what happened to Jai and Vijay. Uh, you know, there's, there's, and Kongsa, Kongsa sent so many child abusers to Vrindavan. And we don't have any hero like Krishna to kill them. So, anyway, this is the model that I see. It's incredibly problematic and it supports the abuse culture that has not been solved. So you can take that down. I'd like to, uh, thank you. Yeah. I'd like to, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking that um, 
I'd like to introduce a, sort of a complexity, mm-hmm. which I think I think impacts your analysis, which of course I think you have a lot of history on your side. And um, could you distract him? It's um, if you have, a, a, for example, nowadays most Hare Krishna temples that I know in big cities, even in the West, where they have deities and all that. They're predominantly an Indian congregation. Yeah. And they are almost, you know, most of them, the strong majority are either married or going to get married. They have careers. And they're, you know, they're very nice people. They're nice devotees. And they are the financial basis of ISKCON, really. I mean, they are, by their hard work and by their piety, they're maintaining most of the temples. And so I think it's interesting to see how there are these different subcultures within ISKCON because at that level, you know, temple president is never going to discourage these professional and fluent congregation members who are supporting the temple, paying to build a new temple. And of course, the Indian families typically very much want their children to go to college, to have a good career. They're often very specific about which careers acceptable for their children and so you have this you you have this other subculture which is of course you know the brahmacharis and book distribution and you know women are maya which is obviously stupid so i mean lust is maya not women so and so there's all these iscon today and i think this impacts also the whole issue of you know how people should be punished it is a multicultural society and what we find is that whether it's the anglican church whether it's the roman catholic church whether it's just gone every religious society which is truly international which is not really just like for example the swami narayan it's it's gujaratis or the sikhs or punjabis in fact one sociologist found that in london uh, the Sikhs, although it originally began as sort of trying to be a universal religion for everyone, but of all the religions that have been studied, it's the one that's most closely identified with a particular ethnic group. So that, for example, among Sikhs in in uh, in England, the word Sikh and Punjabi are actually synonyms. You can, they mean the same thing. But what I mean to say is, so these monocultural entities, uh, it kind of everyone agrees, but when you have truly international multicultural religions, there are often fierce disagreements. So you have the, on the one hand, Indians who are devotees and sincere devotees and who are paying the bills, you know, everyone's happy with their family life. And yeah. everyone, and, but, but somehow if you're, but if you're not, and, and, and so there's all these different cultures going on simultaneously. And, and so I think the analysis, it's kind of like we have to, look at it from a multicultural perspective. I mean, I agree, Maraj, but I think that you're diverting from the point because this is universally seen by so many people. This pattern is far too common. That okay. women and children are really left out right. with the truth. I'm sorry, but that's- No, 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 don't be sorry because I'm not disagreeing with you. I have to admit here, I have to admit here that you probably know more about it than I do. For the simple reason that for many, many years, I kind of, it's not that I didn't leave ISKCON, but I think I really did exit. 
sort of mainstream temple centric ISKCON. Mm -hmm. And I really exited that a long time ago. And I have the very good fortune of being surrounded by wonderful devotees. Like for example, in Krishna West, at least half the leaders are women, perhaps more. I mean, the head of our legal department, I mean, a very nice Vaishnavi created our legal department. Uh, there's another Vaishnavi who's actually directing all of our global publications. So actually the most, the most important leaders in a sense are women. And, um, and in our culture, in our little subculture, you know, from devotees around the world, the kinds of abuses or the kinds of discrimination you mentioned, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm not because they I'm definitely exist a lot. Yeah, I guess because I, I think I am really. Again, I think you know more than I do about it because I've been living in a different world, yeah. and a different culture for many years. Yes. So that's part of my point, Maraj, is that when you're in the top layer, like that first chart, you're a Brahmin sannyasi. There's no way for you to know what it's like to be a woman or a child within ISKCON. So I'm telling you that we're left up with the shoes. <laughs> In case you didn't <laughs> While you're giving class, that's what's happening. Although, again, uh, this is good. This is like our old talks. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I would say that um, I'm not in any way challenging what you're saying. And like I said, I'm sure you know much more about what you're talking about than I do. I'm only adding my uh, humble point, my customary humility, that um, that yeah, I exited that, and and I um, and we have. I mean, we there are thousands. We're talking about thousands of devotees, not just a few. You know, in different countries, that that we see it very very differently. And so, the things you're describing, I don't deny them. I'm not saying you're wrong or you didn't see it properly. I'm just kind of. Um, I don't want to be just grateful because we we are offering with an ISKCON an alternative where that kind of stuff just really right. doesn't go on. Sure. Can I, but, okay, go ahead. Sorry, Paul. I, I thought I might just chuck in a question. So we're talking about these different constituent groups that are not necessarily equally represented, don't have an equal voice or even an opportunity. And you were earlier talking about the, the nature of the dialogue around that. If someone's needs aren't met, quite often they will be in a slightly distorted emotional state and they might scream out their pain or their needs or whatever. Um, and as we've described, the leaders often aren't listening. So that compounds the challenge. How do you see this culture evolving from here? What needs to happen so that we can even get to a point of having this kind of constructive dialogue that you have called us to, Maharaj? Well, I think that um, the I think the GBC again. I know many of them are very sincere devotees and are really trying their best. But I think the inability of the GBC to provide the kind of leadership ISKCON needs. I'm not saying the GBC is illegitimate. Hmm. I'm simply saying that I, I I think it's it's a government which does not perform well which does not know how to, you know, somehow they're unable to treat devotees even often with common courtesy, myself included. You know, you, you can't get common courtesy out of these people as a group. 
they do not there's no quality control and 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 so there's a bit of um frankly despite all the good things they do a bit of headlessness and so, yeah. and so i i think in terms of so now krishna kd get into some you know social <laughs> some sociology. Yeah, yeah. i want to make one more important point and I, I thank you for bearing with my visuals now i uh, in this next one i drew um maybe a relationship that you would be the one to correct so this one's the four rights uh chart or four regulative principles and so while they pull that up what i want to say is that basically as you know, and my understanding is that the four regulative principles are a distillation of the yamas and niyamas. This is like yogic principles of dharma, correct? It's there, it just needs an Leela to pull it up. Oh, okay. So um, basically without, you know, there's some of the names of, oh, here it is. Some of the yamas and niyamas I'm, I'm sorry, this is my handwriting. It's a little messy on this small little. Okay. Kind of nice. Four regulative principles. We know them no illicit sex, no meat eating, no gambling, no intoxication. Now you can see below the yamas, the restraints, and the niyamas observations. So I just drew this relationship that really we can summarize no illicit sex as the practice of brahmacharya no eating meat is ahimsa and no gambling maybe it was asteya or also the the other possibility was aparigriha i don't know which one you would say the stealing non-stealing or non-grabbing right is like i would say is the non no gambling and then the no intoxication i said sautra the practice of cleanliness i'm not sure if you would classify these that way, but for the, uh, the, uh, the purposes of the conversation, we can say that these are the principles of Dharma. And right. some, sometimes they show the yamas like a lotus flower with five petals that have, you know, a variety of these that includes, includes also satya. And um, I think that's it, the asteya, no stealing, cleanliness, so that's basically what the, when people summarize the yamas, they'll often add the satya. For, so that can come down now. Oh, no, not yet. I'm sorry. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> so the point that I wanted to make is that child abuse is not simply breaking brahmacharya. It's the breaking brahmacharya. And a lot of times when a child abuse is either sexual abuse or enables sexual abuse, then it's also, it's also, I consider that ahimsa. And is it not just uh, brahmacharya, there's ahimsa, brahmacharya, the gambling, asaya, no grabbing, okay? Like just even literally, no grabbing. And then no intoxication or cleanliness. If you, how can you do all it, abuse a child and call yourself clean? So, I argue that child abuse breaks all four regulative principles. This is my argument, Maraj. Very interesting. Very thoughtful. I'll just I'll throw out a few things. Okay. 
you know, you know, I'm. It's hard to get me to talk. Yeah, no, that's why we're doing this. Why we're doing it. Yeah, I was just actually joking in my mind. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, just the one. I don't know. You, you probably already know this, but actually, no illicit sex. Prabhupada often defined as no sex outside of marriage. Sure. And I wrote. I sent to the GBC the uh, long list of quotes, and because they were saying. It's only sex and marriage for procreation, which is, of course, a very high standard for very advanced people. But for devotees in general and people in general, illicit sex means sex outside of marriage. And I sent all the evidence, but they've never adjusted that. I um, think that the, the, the Ministry of like Family or whatever does give that recommendation. Okay, good. Very good. Thank you. I would say that child abuse... I'm tempted to say that it not only breaks the principles of yoga, that it's actually what would almost be called asura dharma, that it's demonic. And it's because, like, let's say someone gambles or something like you just hear gambled or, or someone, whatever, sometimes people can't control their urges or something. But child abuse, I think it's it's actually even in a lower category. It's actually, it's like a sura. It's yeah. a, it, it's it's a sura behavior. So it's incredibly powerful. It's also I would say I don't know if you have a, a word for like a negative samskara. This is an incredibly deep cut in the psyche and the and the karmic imprint. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a Sanskrit word like for trauma. Yeah. Something like that. And um But I use that word sanskara because it's marked us. Oh, sanskara is not necessarily good. I mean there's there's actually two different uses of the word sanskara. I mean one word, one meaning is like the rites of passage, what they call the rites of passage, mm -hmm. like like uh ceremonies when you're about to like literally garbadana, like placing mm -hmm. the seed in the or or birth itself or you know cutting the hair and marriage and just all the you know so that those are sanskaras but the other sense of sanskara and the yoga tradition just means a very deep impression in fact there's a famous scholar at the university of chicago eliadi who is very famous in the 20th century who said that that india through the yoga system uh, became the first culture to actually discover deep psychology and so, and so a sanskara in that sense may be a, a, a bad impression. It's just a deep impression, which can be positive or negative. Yes, exactly. So that's why I call the trauma a sanskara, because I feel like it's something that maybe people will understand, like yeah. the depth and the, the, the lifelong imprint, right? That's one of the things like, the marriage ceremony, we do these sanskaras so that they imprint for our entire duration. So that's the karmic impact of abuse. So, one of the, um, sorry, yeah, one, of the, one of the debate points that's come up quite a bit is this Apichetsudaracharya, which you also quoted in your essay. Some are arguing, look, you know, a person's been punished enough, they've reformed themselves. Krishna says there's still a sadhu. Others are saying it's not even about punishment. It's it's not good or uh, avasamantavya that you then become a guru. 
And there's also the consideration of the external community. They're also mentioned on KD's um, temple diagram. Um, maybe people look at these things in different ways. It's Durachar, but is it beyond that? You, you've called it a Suric. Um, well, even Krishna, if we're not talking about punishment. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, oh, Krishna says Sudurachar, very mm. bad behavior. So um, Ananda Leela actually just sent me an article, I think this morning, where they, we find now that 85%, that's almost everybody, 85% of Protestant ministers across all the denominations, 85% of Protestant ministers voted that a, a minister, someone who's in ministry, who has uh, sexually abused anyone, I mean, especially a minor, obviously, but especially a minor, uh, should never again in this life be, be admitted into ministry. Absolutely. And so, you know, whatever one's opinion may be about Apiche Tsudaracharo, for those of us who live and, and try to serve certainly in the Western world, um, if someone has committed sexual abuse. Uh, it doesn't they, have to be sexual abuse. There's lots of ways. Okay, that. okay. Although I guess that's an interesting discussion, by the way. I mean, that itself is a I very- can say, I can say for a fact that every kind of abuse, every kind of abuse, like physical, sexual, emotional, all, involves psychological abuse and damage psychological damage psychological damage so okay i agree with you i agree with you i i, I would con I, I mean i happily agree with you that let's say because i mean you know you, it's not like you know it's not like a pure science like mathematics or something but i would say that any type of abuse which rises to or, or maybe goes down which reaches a certain depth of of damage how about just professional standards? What's that? Professional standards, maybe. Yeah. No, I, I mean, yes. I yeah, do think in general, we do need to be more centered on the survivors. But there's just basic level of professional standard. No, that's fine. That's fine. I, I, I would definitely defer to professionals. <laughs> and um, even though I'm a guru and therefore a know-it-all, or I know it all, but it's... Um, but yeah, I would definitely defer. I mean, to me, that's that's a matter for science, just like gender intelligence to me is a matter for reputable science. And so if we learn from, you know, competent professionals that a type of behavior causes severe trauma and something which then, of course, then I agree with you, then that, you know, so abuse is not only sex abuse. So, so then this is where I wanted to kind of um look at that how that translates into our experience with this gun has been that the philosophy has been wielded as a tool of psychological abuse as a as a tool or a weapon of psychological abuse yeah by many people i think that when you you know they say power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely I know, I mean, I actually know some GBC members were kind of beleaguered and exhausted and just, you know, trying to get up in the morning and do something. 
And I know others who I would say have tendencies toward narcissism and who um, who mistreat and bully uh, people who they imagine are under their power. I, I think, I would say most of them, I think are sincere, trying doing their best, whatever their best looks like. And, but I agree with you. I mean, I basically, to, to me, I thoroughly endorse and, and, and really want a um, to sort of free ISKCON from this pervasive amateurism on so many levels. Yes. So, so what has happened is over time is that this, the institution has hardened around some of this misapplication of philosophy. It's actually abusive institutionally. Um, if you look at as a pattern, especially because, you know, I'm looking at it as a, an adult child, but it seems to me that there's a very, the higher up you get in that temple diagram, the more you have the privilege and possibility of abusing with impunity, adults and children. But there's several uh, people who've committed child abuse while wearing sannyas vesh, who continue to wear sannyas vesh. And it completely deteriorates the public trust in that ashram. There cannot be, now that there's just like multiple sannyasis who this has happened to, you can say, oh, this will attract, this will attract predators. Because I've also seen book distributors, if you're a big book, book distributor, big kirtan leader for Sunday Feast, they have a harder time, you know, going through the process. ISKCON protects child abusers. It, as a whole, this Metaverse is one of the first ones whipped out. We should forgive. This is a heavy, heavy rhetoric of forgiveness, which I don't agree with. I think this is, I've actually seen forgiveness listed as one of the pillars of bhakti, where I've never heard any of our six Goswamis speaking about forgiveness um, as a pillar of bhakti. Of course, kindness and all of these qualities. Well, forgiveness, forgiveness. I mean, Krishna does mention, he doesn't say pillar. It's not like in a very no, small. No, I think that's a made up thing. Yeah, it's not in a small elite list. It was an Instagram. Yeah, because Shema. <laughs> Shema means for, I, I think that, um, again, what I really want mm -hmm. is a professionalization. ISKCON has a pervasive amateurism, whether it's in the total inability to do marketing, to find out whether people can actually understand our books or what books they can't understand, sort of a total indifference to that or whether it's lacking a, I would like to see a body and, and maybe we shouldn't get into it now, my opinion about the ICPO because I really did my homework on this one. And I know oh, okay, well, let's hear it then. Let's hear your homework. I want to know. Uh, okay, I'll just finish that sentence and I'll jump sure. in and then ruin all the goodwill I've created. But uh, <laughs> I would like to see ISKCON how should I put it, institute a, a highly professional body of experts in the fields of psychology, neurology, 
and uh, you know, obviously with with specializations and child abuse and all that, and I would like to see decisions made on 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 the grounds of science, you know, n not on people's feelings. But 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 we know that, and 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 I agree with you. I agree with you that Prabhupada, said, you know, Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. Prabhupada always taught this that if we're going to have the audacity to present ourselves to the public as a higher culture, a spiritual culture. We have to set a higher standard, not a lower standard. Yes. And, and and so here, for example, you have like, you know, 85% of Protestant ministers taking their stand. So as far as the, I don't know, I, I don't want to be mean spirited, but there was one particular case that I, I investigated, not the guilt or innocence uh, of the accused, because I kept saying over and over again, I don't know. I'm not God, I don't know, I haven't investigated, but I do know very clearly what fair process is. I know what witness tampering is. Okay, okay. so let's stop you there before you ruin your yeah. well with the guru coolings. Let's yes. just first to finish off all of that leading up, you know, I wrote all the charts to kind of walk us down this path. And I what I what I would really like to, you know, we've talked about acknowledging these offenses on a professional level and on a public trust level, on a philosophical level, as it's been stated elsewhere, would you agree that child abuse within Islam is Vaishnava Aparad? Is? Vaishnava Aparad. Oh, it's major Vaishnava Aparad. Yeah. Oh, so that's an important, that's a very important distinction because it actually emphasizes the rights of a child. You know, the, the UN rights of a child, you can look that up sometime. Um, if we're not acknowledged in ISKCON, or not we, I say that as like, you know, the collective children, but if children aren't acknowledged as Vaishnavas, then they lose their human rights within ISKCON. Yeah. Because the sannyasi or whoever any adult is, is considered a Vaishnav. And then we're supposed to forgive and we're supposed to allow them to have mistakes and fall downs. But this is also really important to make a distinction that child abuse is not a fall down. It's not an accident. You To cross a line with a child cannot be called an accident. It's just, it, will, it lacks all responsibility and it, it victim- Well, well I, I would say it blames the victim because for their own trauma. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, blaming the victim is, is obviously would be absurd. But for example, I, I think I would like to use an additional category here. Okay. In terms of social, you know, sociology and psychology. Yeah. That is, let's say, for example, a man in a moment of just extreme anger and madness kills another person. That crime, the, the fact that you could say, you know, momentary insanity, you could say that person's overcome by rage, it's still murder. And that person still yeah. will be convicted and punished as a murderer. So it gets into the issue. Okay, here we get into our real uh, ballpark here. It get it. I think what we're really looking at, again, my, my desire to be sort of, um, what's the word, rigorous here, it gets into an issue of psychological determinism. And, and I'm not bringing up this category to say, okay, let this person off or this person should not be punished 
or, you know, just forget about it. No, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm in no way using this category of human psychology to justify or to excuse. Okay, I, I think I understand where you're, where you're going with this, that, that as victims and survivors, we have to also choose survival, right? We have to choose the higher... No, absolutely, but I, but I was actually thinking also of, for example, I mean, obviously to commit child abuse, especially for one who's in a high position, is uh you know it's 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 an unspeakable horrible thing and the, the word unspeakable is actually meant that they say avadya unspeakable to mean something which is really bad yeah and so um like like even the same criminal prosecution according you know the normal way that civilized countries adjudicate crimes that someone you know there, there's there's a premeditation right. and then there's sort of a spontaneous like you went crazy and you did something really bad you're going to be punished for it you are guilty you're not exonerated you're not innocent if you're not let's say like a, you know it's a complete lunatic or a complete mad person that you know society should have incarcerated or, or locked up this person so when so yeah, I, but there is a legal distinction, and and these distinctions sometimes come down for you know for a thousand years, and they're based on you know millions of cases, and so I think it'd be a mistake to just sort of to not pay attention to certain old legal traditions between so premeditation right. and. Okay, so so that's we're we're talking about intent, right? We're talking about intent. Or yeah, premeditated to be the difference between premeditation. Sometimes people will say, like, I didn't need to hurt you. Uh, and and so intent is one thing and premeditation. Well, well, say, well, but, 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 but if you say Let me respond, though. Okay. It's important because your perspective is really still focused on the perpetrator. So in general, the conversation needs to center on the survivor and there's a few things that are necessary to heal, whether it's premeditated or not, may or may not, um, you know, impact. I'm getting an echo. Um, so I know that for abuse survivors, one of the most important thing is to be witnessed. And now, the witness is actually, as we know, because we have the witness in our heart, a very special, a very, very special piece of healing. There needs to be one person who is an adult figure or a leader to acknowledge, yes, this happened. Of course. When that doesn't happen, when there's no acknowledgement, then abuse survivors uh, self-direct that pain right, or right. direct it to the world. So we can say that this piece, this like piece of grace from super soul is an incredibly important piece of healing. So before we start talking about any of the intent of the perpetrator, we have to understand, have we heard and acknowledged the victim? Yeah, of That's course. Number one. Secondly, secondly, <laughs> it continues to perpetuate the harm 
when we see a person who has made a violation or an offense that egregious, asura dharma, and they're continuing to be elevated on the vyasasan or in the the, the sannyas vesh and the garlanded people, there's no small, there's no fine print to sannyas, right? Nobody says, well, like, oh, but he's not an official Iskand guru. He's only allowed to just come take darshan, but he won't give class. But his disciples are all around paying obeisances to him. But still, he is a child abuser and he's not giving class. So there you go. So but let's you, allow Maharaj to respond. Yeah. But so so um, the point is that the that when we see abusers in positions of public trust and power, it continues to harm the victim. Okay. Valid point. I first of all, uh, you want to do what I do best: defend myself. So, um, okay. <laughs> so I um I don't think I said anything which, in my mind, shows that my first focus is on the perpetrator or trying to mitigate the offense as opposed to the victim. Okay. I be I believe that in a civilized justice system which and i think it's very telling that the gvc despite urgent calls for it for decades is unable to establish a justice ministry in iscon i mean that speaks for itself so i only mentioned thing of premeditation because there you can be you can be totally sympathetic to the victim but yet but you can actually there's a line between let's say a, a serious justicism the justice system which does give first concern victim and vigilantism and so i want this going to be a civilized society civilized to me doesn't mean let perpetrators go free and ignore the victims that's not what all, all what i mean i believe that every aspect of a justice system has to be professional it has to be intelligent and it has to make relevant distinctions uh to me it's not a relevant distinction to say that a perpetrator you know should not be seriously punished that's not a relevant distinction as as far as the um i think you made a lot of good points i um in my private life not my public life I actually, not to say something really shocking, no, but in my private life, I actually do help a lot of guru coolies. I don't talk about it because I, I, my first duty is to protect their privacy, not to, you know, toot my horn, which includes spending a lot of money to put a lot of them through college. And uh, so, my, you know, in, in sort of in a discreet way, I, I do really care very much about it. And it's just, it's a little thing. I mean, obviously other people are doing much more. So I agree with everything you said, really. And, uh, and talking to you, it, it really helps me. And that's why I want to talk to you, not, not to win a debate, you know, yeah. pleasing as that is. But <laughs> because I really, I really respect your- All day, because I'm not going to let you win, Maharaj. Uh, I'm happy to hear we're that. going to have a good conversation and find agreement. <laughs> yes. No, but I, I've always respected your intelligence and I've always respected your integrity. And um, 
And I welcome this opportunity for this discussion, among other things, because I know that by talking to you, I'm going to learn. And uh, so I, I appreciate that. And, 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 you know, you're speaking with great feeling and authenticity. And, uh, and it's very good for me to hear that. Yeah, Mara, I, a few minutes. Sorry, go ahead. A, a few minutes ago, you were talking about concerns with due process and ICPO. I think you're about to describe some of the things you'd like to see going forward, or things that historically you've been less than convinced. I yeah, my concern. I believe I don't want to see ISCON descend into what I would describe from what I saw. And I really did investigate this very carefully. Vigilantism in any civilized society. In any civilized society, in the in fair process, there must be three elements. There must be a prosecution, there must be the defense, and there must be a judge. And when the prosecution also becomes the judge, that's not a justice system. When the person managing the proceeding declares that this person would rather see any number, I mean, including a very large number of innocent people, of innocent people punished, that is better than letting one guilty person go free. And in terms of abuse, I mean, I think like a, like a, a simple basic definition would abuse of abuse would be causing significant harm to an innocent person. And, and so for someone to say, I prefer that any number of people, innocent people, innocent people, be abusively punished, to me, that's better than one guilty person going free when there's egregious witness. Do we have a history of prosecuting uh, uh, like innocent uh, people for abuse? What I'm, no, what, I, what I'm talking about here is process. And any civilized society that is not just you know, a vigilante mob or you know, warlord. Okay, so I take exceptions to this vigilante mob because I have been advocating for child protection and so I'm, I'm not accusing I'm, I'm not a oh, let, me, let me just clarify let me just clarify I am not saying that this or that group is a vigilante mob I'm just I'm just putting out I, but I have been called I've been called mob justice before not by me not by me but it doesn't matter we're talking about the concept right so but, but, but if I could just go ahead, finish. let Maharaj finish yeah like the good old days yeah, KD, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, KD was always great to talk to. So, um, in other words, it's precisely in those situations where we are most justifiably disturbed, concerned, where we see real evil before us. I mean, it's precisely in those situations where civilization is tested, in situations where we justifiably have perhaps our strongest feelings, can we still maintain fair process? In, 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 in the case that I got involved in, I kept saying over and over again, I couldn't have said it more. There's no way as a human being, I could say it more clearly or more often that I am not claiming that this person is innocent. I'm not claiming this person is innocent. I'm simply saying there are universal international standards a fair process. And if those standards are met, whatever the verdict, if this person is found guilty, I will accept it without protest. 
I will simply submit to the decision of a fair process. That's all I said. And for that, I was accused of being an abuser. I was accused of, 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 of actually trying to facilitate child abuse because I simply said that I know this wasn't fair. I mean, I studied it very carefully. I went into the bylaws of the ICPO. I showed actually problems e even at the level of, of bylaws, which were which did not meet universal standards of fair process. And there's all kinds of I mean, I mean, I mean there, there's a list of like principles of fair process and, and they were almost all violated. I was just calling for a fair trial. And I said, whatever the decision, I'll accept it. That's all I said. And for that, I was, you know, I got hate mail. I was, um, you know, I mean, people, you know, telling me I used to respect you, but you're this and you're that. Just because I said, I want to live in a society where the universal standards of fair process are false. That's all I said. Did you know that I get um, death threats for, for uh, advocating for child protection? I have received death threats. I have to ask Brahmacharitha because he kind of, I, I don't remember. Well, no, I have, Maharaj. I'm telling you I have. Well, whoever made the death threat is, I would say, is an Asura in, in Vaishnav dress. Right. So, so I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that the system isn't modeled after just the system that you would like to see within ISKCON. I would like to just respond by saying that there is absolutely no due process for victims. This, that, that whatever prosecution you're talking about is also not an advocate for victims. Victims themselves have no advocacy. I could like do this for a full-time job. I'm I would love to, I would, you should do it. I mean, it's gone. Well, well, are you gonna pay me? What's that? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put in my nickel. No, really, I, um, I think that what, what I see happening here between us, in addition to a very a happy reunion, is um, that I think you are eloquently and powerfully making extremely important points. And I think ISKCON cannot succeed, it can't flourish, unless it really pays attention to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I am making some other points, which some people interpret as, you know, I don't care about the victims, Okay, so I'm going to explain it to you. I understand why you're feeling defensive. I get it. I also, so here's why, okay? Here's why, is that there's practically the most abusers are protected by the institution already, especially if they have any position and if they have friends in the GBC. The GBC will always um, meddle and uh, devalue the work of child protection continuously and consistently unless it's to cover their reputation. So although I understand your considerations about due process, I I think that the reason is that, be, that you were making those points not in a general sense, but it was in relation to a particular case. And that intervention on the case was not welcome, just like any other GBC or sannyasi should stay awake. No, no, but no, but actually, no, I, let me, 
let me say this. If, let's say, any entity, it could be the ICPO or some other regional CPO, if they follow international standards of civilized societies for yeah. justice, if they follow that, then I agree that let them do their job. Okay. So I think that I, I don't I don't know that there's an, a, dis, a disagreement. What I would suggest is that those things are contributed to the ICPO when it's not riding on a case, a high profile case of, of consequence. I think it's, it's we all want to see the same thing. We do. And absolutely. So if we can strengthen the judicial process, and and also create more resources for victims and survivors we yep. need to just make sure that we you know there's been a, a un you know there's just been so much protection for abusers and I, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll forgive them. There's so many ways that the abuse is enabled, but through philosophy. Yeah, and, and, and that, and that is, I'm sure. Through and I'm not at all, yeah, I'm not talking about that at all. And I hope you understand that I am your fan and supporter in this. And uh, I, I believe in what you're doing. I, I think it's a noble cause. I'm only saying that it's often said, it's often been said by many wise people, even if they, even if they didn't belong to the Hare Krishna movement, that, um, that the real test of a society is that in difficult situations, like we talk about professionalism. I mean, clearly, clearly the head of the ICPO must have professional credentials. That's not the case now. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Mm. They both have master's degrees. In... in Child protection. In child, child protection. Okay. Perhaps I, I got the wrong information. I will correct myself. I'll verify that. But, and the processes have been certified by experts in the field as being top class, yeah. notwithstanding the concerns you have. We were wondering uh, what... Uh, I, 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 again, you have to forgive me, but I would really, because I, I, had re I received very different information. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that because I received very different, different information from people who definitely don't, you know, are not trying to protect child abuse. I would definitely want to verify some of that because at the time I, I made my comments several years ago, it was not the case. And I, yeah, I mean, in, in the particular case that I was involved in, there's no reputable body that could know what I knew or that could be presented with the information I found and say it was first class. It's just impossible. I, I mean, I'm, I know enough about law and justice and, and fair process it's impossible but that's we'll see if we can involve them on the thread to respond obviously yeah, it's yeah. the middle of the night yeah, in the I, uk I, I, right I, now yeah, yeah actually what i would like to do is uh so that i don't make false claims to investigate it further because and, and so i would like to you know investigate more and find out and if i've as far as the fair process i received a lot of evidence that which was proves my point but but in any case i just want to say to christian david talk that I mean, I really do appreciate. I appreciate you, and I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, I think that I mean, you've certainly helped me. I mean, you have a very strong voice. You have, I mean, I, to me, unquestioned integrity. And uh, so I'm grateful that you've taken the time to 
to express yourself. And and I you know I I don't think I'm part of the problem. And 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 I also I also agree with you. I mean we have a serious problem. I think it's possible to be, to be respectful to the GBC in the way that we should be respectful in general to Vaishnavas. And at yeah. the same time, recognize that our society has a major leadership problem. It's a serious leadership problem, and it's um, it, it it pops up everywhere. It, it's like if there's some problem, disease in your body, all kinds of symptoms arise. And of course, this is one of the most tragic symptoms. Perhaps you know, not really policing the schools and so on, but um, we do it's have a not just schools though. It's really important that we think that the problem is not solved because our schools are closed. It's incredibly important because that culture of abuse is still present. That hasn't been adjusted. And nor is there a place to, to have any representation or respectful dialogue. This is very unique. And I always appreciate this opportunity, Mark. But this is not something that I get to do. And truthfully, I. Uh, last year, I approached the GBC regarding Donadar because he was applying to re-enter ISKCON as a guru, even though that was the whole reason he was not an official guru. He's never been kicked out. He was just told because he's beaten so many kids, he can't be a guru. So now he's just been a guru somewhere else while his disciples flourish and marginalize his victims, he still comes in sannyasvesh. Anyway, he's an example of even where the people made a ruling and it's not followed by many GBC and sannyasis and gurus, and they enable him, and they enable this. So this is, here's the problem. Somebody like, somebody like Donadar, do you know how many millennial group police, group police, second generation, uh, uh, pay their obeisances to him? It's incredibly, incredibly painful to know that our brothers, like so, several brothers, took their lives from the pain and suffering from being beaten. Like I could tell you stories, Maharaj. Like I've heard from these men themselves what their experiences were you know Marj had a, a i shouldn't call him Mar i don't want to call him Marj. okay donardar had a signature slap of boxing fits by their ears really hard slamming both their ears and several uh, boys men have permanent ear damage permanent damage to their eardrums from their boxing of the head. This was, this was common. Every day, his method of walking through the gurukula and deciding who's gonna get whacked today. The element of surprise is intense psychological abuse. Now just let me put it to you this way. Can you imagine if there was an Iskand Swami who was using the same methodology with cows? in the Holy Dom. Good point. They would have lost their life. They, they would have lost their life. They would have lost their life in India. But here we like waffle. Oh, it was so long ago. 
Dunadar will never be forgiven in this lifetime because his victims took their life. He has suicided victims, and so he takes that burden. So my, my point is, though, that when I went after this, he's preaching, just like you have Krishna West. He's preaching all over America. His pop disciple is going to a music festival next week. He's one of our the top, you know, prominent podcasters, yoga asana teachers, and celebrity devotees as a Donadar disciple. And so the message is that, you know, he's accepted. So on the, on the other hand, while I watch him bring all of these yoga people and tourists, new people and millennial second generation into the Holy Dom following a, a sannyasi who has performed Asura Dharma repeatedly for long, long, many years, okay? And not just like one or two, like hundreds of children were slammed by this man. So, so then I was, once, once the, sorry, I just want to make this point. I was the one called a vigilante. I was the one called mob justice. Because when I go to the GBC, I'm just a little girl, Maharaj. They just see me as a little girl. And I started a petition. And we approached the GBC with 3,000 names. Because that's the only way that I'll be heard. Otherwise, I'm out with the shoes, Maharaj. I'm out with the shoes. There's no place for me to be heard. And there's no means to advocate for our children and our victims, our brothers and sisters. So I, I just want to clarify that I was using the word vigilante in a different way. I mean, well, I, 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 don't, I am. I'll put on. I'll ride, Maharaj. I will. No, no. What you were doing, I see you as a, as an activist. That that's very different than what I meant by vigilante. Okay. Well. Could you elaborate a little on that distinction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vigilante means that, I mean, in, in the case of the person you mentioned, you know, yes. um, there are proven uh, offenses. Mm -hmm. Offenses, some of them very grave. I mean, most grave. Yeah. And so, therefore, you, vigilante means, in, in the sense I'm using it, that you skip the judicial process and it's like frontier justice, you know, just hanging from the highest tree and you bypass. But in the case of Donadar Swami, he did go through a judicial process. And therefore the statements that uh, KD is uh, that KD is making, she's not bypassing, the judicial process actually took place. And so what she's demanding is justice. She's demanding that based on proven allegations that proper measures should be taken that's not vigilanteism. That's, you know, she's fighting for justice. Okay. She understands it. So, Martin, the problem, the problem, though, with the case that you were involved in, though, is that if you, if you fight too heavily for fair process without fair fighting for the voice of the victim, and still fight too heavily to 
make sure that justice is served to perpetrators. That's why you ended up on that side of the argument. Okay, you're probably right. At the same time, um, there is a large body of people who chant Hare Krishna in their own, in their, in their different ways, who are seriously irrational. It's one thing, I mean, a lot. So, so it's, for example, I'm talking to you, and what you said to me just now. I'm thinking that's good advice, you know, because you're a lady, you're a Vaishnavi, you're an intelligent person, and you are telling me what you think. And so I think I'm, you know, I'm grateful to hear it. I've always respected you. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, she's probably right. And I, I've, the same thing you said, actually, I've heard from my own disciples. Of course, I never forgive them for correcting me, but anyway, so, but I think, I mean, so, so, so that's one. You forgive me, Maharaj. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one thing to give someone good advice, which I think you did. It's another thing to publicly declare that because that, that you know you're evil and you're a horrible person and you're this and that and uh, that's different. So I'm always, you know, I hope that I'm not so lost. In, in well, people are punching up, Maharaj. You know, I think you have to be a little like you're a symbol. When you're wearing saffron, you become a symbol. As in symbol slash target. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we all have our turns. I'm a target. Really. I also am a target, Maharaj. So I know. I know. That's the responsibility of being a leader. You have to take it. I'm sorry. No, no, I know that. But you, but you are. I mean, for me, you're not a target, and, and I, I'm sure I'm not a target for you. You know, you're a friend who's 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 giving advice, which 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 I'm listening to carefully. So, what I want to do is, there's something about the democratization of reality, or. In other words, I think it's very dangerous in society. We've seen that play out in having a um, an extremely dangerous sociopath in the White House. You know, a little while ago. Right. I mean, someone who I thought was an, existen an existential threat to civilization, based on my knowledge of history. Yeah. So at the present time, and I won't go into. I mean, I could. You know, I like this. I could talk for hours about the last few centuries of history, but I'll spare you that. I won't punish you with that. So another time, another time. Yes. But I think it's very important that we have, and this is really gets to Dhammadar. I mean, this is the point you made in the opening. Oh, let me give you one little anecdote quickly. When I went to Harvard and when, you know, when I registered, that was like the old fashioned way you actually they had tables set up and you go there and and show your ID, and they give you a welcome package, like this envelope. So in addition to one free ticket to a Harvard football game, you know, I was kind of looking through it, and they had this this little, like, um, like announcement or, 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 or this little pamphlet, I would say. And they were explaining and justifying why Harvard, as a free speech community, and, and sort of defined itself as a free speech community, why Harvard does not allow certain kinds of speech, such as hate speech. 
And the argument they gave was because there are certain kinds of speech which destroy free speech because they create sort of this mob rule, as we saw with this, you know, sociopath who was in the White House. Right. And, and so therefore, I think it's very important that you and myself, Damodar, and, you know, other people who feel strongly and obviously coming from different experiences, but at the same time, we talk to each other. I mean, I remember when I was young, when I was in high school and, you know, you know, we were really kind of politically active. I belonged to the young Democrats. I didn't know why I just did, you know, because everyone else belonged to them. But, And I remember in those days, there would be debates. Like, for example, James Baldwin, a leading uh, African-American civil rights. He was like one of the leading intellectuals of the whole civil rights movement, famous author. And then you had William Buckley, who was one of the leading conservatives. And they had these debates. They had a debate at the Oxford Union in Oxford, Oxford University. And what was very interesting is that they were both learned, they were both articulate, and they were and they respected each other. They disagreed strongly, but they were gentlemen. Mm -hmm. and, and and so there's a certain culture which makes possible reasonable discussion, debate, which makes possible for you, for example to convince me of certain points, which, you know, I think you have. And so, but in order to have that kind of Brahminical dialogue, we can't hate each other. We can't, you know, call each other malicious names. And uh, so that culture doesn't favor one side or the other. It doesn't predispose the discussion or the debate. It allows us to have a discussion. Yes. Yes. That's my only point. That was really the only point in my book. So I think, you know, just back to the original living room talks that we had was always that we needed a, a venue. What's Well, so like there's so many things broken with this done, I think. But two things that I think are like absolutely critical for the healing of his gone and the growth of his gone in the future is uh, one child protection is just like when there's divorced parents they say if you put the 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 welfare of the children at the top then it'll keep you in alignment even if you disagree on everything if you can like put that as number one then you can create harmony so as far as i'm concerned the child protection office with maybe your support and advice about how they can improve. This is a, like critical and foundational level of accountability. Because I agree. I agree. from top to bottom. I agree. I agree. And one thing I wanted to point out is that one of the key distinctions between first world countries and third world countries, and there are various distinctions, but one of them is that typically in third world countries, NGOs are not very strong. It's kind of like warlords and you know, tyrants and corrupt governments. Whereas in first world countries, and, and there's actually, there are institutes, academic, academic institutes that measure levels of governmental transparency and, and justice system. Usually Scandinavia scores very high. So, so I think that ISCON, in order not to be a sort of a third world, mega mango republic or something i i think 
it's really, I, I think it's a mistake tact strategically to think that everybody has to wait around for a an often ineffective GBC to become effective. I believe that what ISCON really needs is people like you and, and, and to really form powerful uh, NGOs that really sway public opinion. For example, when I just when I started Krishna West, uh, there were there were some leaders in the movement who were just absolutely determined to like destroy it. And there was all kind. I mean, someday when you have more time, I'll bore you with all the stories. But there was an incredible amount of, I would say, abusive injustice. And so what I did is I took my case to the people. And, and one thing, one thing I learned from Amarendra about appeal courts, the strategy for persuading an appeal court, a panel of judges, is completely different from from a, a jury trial. Because in a jury trial, often the people aren't very bright because lawyers usually kind of, you know, uh, disqualify people who actually think because they want to manipulate the jury. Yeah. But, but when you get to a panel of, of learned appeal judges, if you start, you know, doing your histrionics and you're shouting and banging your fist and emotional appeal, they'll just, they'll crush you because they take it as an, as an insult to their intelligence. And so when you're doing an appeal before a panel of judges, you're calm and you make your case. And that's, I decided that's what I was going to do in a calm way without offending anyone by, by name. I was going to make my case to the devotees of ISKCON. And I did. And I, and I think that I got so much sympathy. One GBC person said that since they did one of their like really outrageous things they did with me, um, one GBC admitted that your it looks like your support has tripled, and, and and so basically, so I think you. I mean, I really see you as an important leader, and uh, I think it is possible to create powerful NGOs that don't try to subvert Prabhupada's system. But I think the GBC can only function properly because what we see now is a totally top-down model with you know very little lateral movement. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. When I was doing research on the GBC, I was writing a paper, which I did a 60-page paper on the lack of justice in ISKCON, which I can send you. And because the, the GBC, in their own rhetoric, they would always say, like, you know, sannyasis are under the GBC and the doys are under the GBC. And then I looked, and the whole database, and Prabhupada never used that language. Yeah. And so I believe that the GBCs, without powerful NGOs, who are loyal and and reasonable, but really, you know, crusade for what they believe in. I don't know if we're still allowed to use that word, crusade. But anyway, really, you know, really fight for what art style. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really fight for what they believe in, not as renegades, not as you know, sort of branded as disloyal or something, but as leaders, as public leaders, civic leaders, as intelligent, determined people. And I think without powerful NGOs in ISKCON, I don't think we can get an effective GBC. Because I think government, left of their own devices, will inevitably drift into uh, inefficiency, corruption, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage you that what what we I think we really need in ISKCON. Like, how do we solve the problem of a GBC which is largely unable to do quality control of its own members? And there seems to be something which I guess the kind of the the heavy word would be cronyism. 
you know, you know, they may interpret as just, you know, compassion for their old friends or something, you know, you could call it cronyism. And so I don't think, I don't think we can have a good GBC if we don't have NGOs and ISCOM. That's my analysis. Right. So that's, that's a great suggestion. The, the other thing I was going to say is just, there does need to be uh, some way to address the GBC that doesn't take a, a crusade. There is a way, there is a way. There is a way because when, and the way is, frankly, you have to build up popular support. The GBC, if they see that you, as they saw, frankly, in my case, that Krishna West at a certain point became inoperable, you know, in the ISKCON body, because it was so, when you get support, you're an, you're an articulate, intelligent person with great integrity. And I think that if rather than just like, I, I think in a sense, the problem is that people like you, Wow, people like you. I, I, I think I think one of the problems is kind of kind of I think I think one of the problems is for you or me to think that you know what can we do? The GBC will never get it. I think when the GBC see when they understand that a lot of people are persuaded by your arguments. A lot of people are behind you. They will do what they need to do in order to keep peace in ISKCON, in order to keep things, you know, proper. Okay. They so will have, the they will have, they we will do have, need to crusade then. Okay. I said then we do need to crusade. Yeah, they yeah. will have to they will have to negotiate with you. They will have to deal with you. What if, there was some, like, what if like there's somebody like like I I mean I I've I've you know, trailblazed a place for myself to have a voice. But a lot of people don't have that spirit. And just, I mean, to me, just as a concept, I like the idea of having NGOs affiliated, but to exactly remedy the authoritarian top down, there needs to be some, you know, representation of the people, so to speak, right? What do they say? You know this one? Here's the church and here's the steeple and here's all the people. <laughs> so, what a mudra. <laughs> so, I'm mindful that we're about one minute, 40, uh, one hour 45 minutes in, and it must be getting particularly late where you guys are. It's okay for me. Well, I'm just so happy to have this. Let's talk to you, everybody. Happy to have this reunion with uh, my old friend. Yeah, sorry, sorry for socializing. You've been extraordinarily generous, both of you, and speaking with great um, force and clarity and so on. I'm, I'm thinking, though, that maybe it's time that we think about some concluding statements yeah. from each of you, and then we'll also cherry pick possibly from the comment section. But I don't want to presume too much on both of your time. At one minute, uh, one hour, 45 minutes, how long is reasonable to continue? Uh, I'm fine. I just consider it of our audience, and I would like to. Yeah. Well, I mean, people, they, you know, they always have the uh, leave button. So yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'm very happy that I'm having this conversation with Christian Davita. And um, I'm an optimist. You know, I was raised in California, can do. But um, I, and I believe in ISKCON, not because I think the leadership at this point is particularly brilliant, 
but because I think that if we are sincere and we are devoted, that, that Krishna will somehow empower us and, and help us. And um, so I, so, so, I mean, like the fact that Krishna Devata and I coming from different directions, we obviously share a lot of concerns and we have, I mean, some things I care about more maybe than she has thought about them. And obviously she has concerns as a mother, as a guru coolie. In a, or as we, this wonderful way of talking, this kind as a female-bodied devotee. And so, I mean, obviously she is going to have concerns because of her life experience. And, 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 you know, we have, and so I think the fact that we can work together, we can talk. And the disagreement is actually, I think it, it's enriching because Christian Devata is bringing a perspective which is powerful, which is intelligent, which is extremely important. And I don't have her life experience but I can learn from it, you know, and I've had other experiences. So that's why civility is so important because it allows us to enrich each other by bringing experiences that the other may not have had, but would still, you know, I mean, for example, I was brought to the brink of, I, I thought I was going to, you know, I've been brought to the brink. Let me put it this way in my service to ISKCON where I feel I had to make certain very strong decisions just literally to save my sanity. Mm-hmm. and to save my spiritual life. I mean, I was, yeah. by certain things that happened in this time, by certain ways that I was treated, I was brought to the brink. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I did what I had to do. And I mean, Christian David taught, you know, didn't have those experiences, but she had others that I didn't have, which are, were equally powerful and, and equally important. And so, you know, we can be nice. We can really work together. And, and I think I really firmly, I, I'm like someone, I'm a child of the... Uh, you know, the rational enlightenment. I really believe that that people with goodwill and good intentions who listen to each other and respect each other can come to a, you know, not exactly maybe the same thing, but to sufficient agreement and sufficient mutual understanding to work together effectively to make ISKCON more of what it, it's supposed to be. Thank you. Any final thoughts from you, KD? Sure. I I just uh, wanted to address, you know, the the idea that like I'm not part of this one because I I do talk about leaving. You know, I've left this one. I I don't even know what that means anymore because like I told you recently, I gave up my Iskand Seva, so that's significant. But like me being frustrated with Iskand and saying like I'm done with it, they don't. They don't know that they're losing me. They don't have any clue, right? Like, and and I've even heard recently, like people talking about like dismissing me, like, oh, she's not part of this gone. So I just, you know, for you and many others to know that I can like say that I'm leaving this gone, and even this gone can tell me that I'm not part of this gone. But I was raised on Krishna Prashad. I was raised in the temples of Iskan, and Iskan will forever be part of my life story. So if I if I write a tell-all, they'll definitely be in my book, even if I'm not in theirs. Okay, so I just want one of the reasons I bring that up, and I think this is an important, an important point. Also, just my last point: when I, when I was studying. One of the things that we looked at in terms of that sociology perspective is that 
a group isn't just the group. Everybody who's left the group is also a, as also telling of the group. Every person who's ever left ISKCON is actually part of ISKCON. And when we think about that broad picture of all of the people who've been harmed or discarded in their story with ISKCON, that it's a much broader and more accurate picture. And that if we just look at the institution and look through the windows, like, you know, and just look at what's going on in the temple, that's not ISKCON. And you know that obviously, but it's important for other people. So I say that for other people that that ISKCON, no matter what I say, I'm like, I've left ISKCON out of frustration. Of course, like, I love Srila Prabhupada and Srila Prabhupada loves me. That I know. And I also know that Krishna has witnessed every one of us. So that's, that's how I'm part of this one. And that's my final word. Massive thank you to you both for um, passionately engaging. And I don't mean Rajagoon here, but to full, <laughs> full blooded uh, participation in such an important topic. And I hope it has been. Um, helpful food for thought for anyone that was uh, dialing in. Um, especially grateful for the generosity of time and even spirit, you know, perhaps we departed from time to time. I said I was going to be unobtrusive. I was probably way more unobtrusive than I should have been. It was perfect. Um, I'm going to cherry pick just a few comments uh, with a view of making sure that we've done justice to those. Some of them I might turn into question. One of the challenges with, let's say, a crusade to have the GBC adjudicate current cases and so on is that there's a load of disciples who are now possibly for the first time hearing things about their guru's past. And many of them will feel uh, morally obligated to defend their guru's honor and they'll go to various extremes in doing so. Do you have any advice, um, Maharaj, if someone hears accusations how do they balance the feeling heard and witnessing with defending their guru's honor and how exactly do we resolve all of those things well i'm glad i got a simple question um <laughs> i would say that it's um i do feel compassion for disciples like that let's say there's a disciple who on the one hand only has good experience Let, let's say a disciple feels you know, you saved me from material life. You know, you brought me to Krishna and and therefore, you know, I'll always be grateful. On the other hand, there's, you know, there's their past activities, which are, um, you know, horrendous. And so, uh, yeah, I, I feel compassion for those people because those followers, I mean, they're not really, they haven't abused anyone. And um, Christian Davidson? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. I mean, yeah. there are irreducibly complicated, difficult things. And, and I think what Christian Davidson has been emphasizing, I think, is if, if we really are compassionate and, and if we can somehow, if, if we're just Krishna conquer. I mean, really Krishna conscious and really something we haven't you know, mentioned so much as much as, you know, but but still, I mean, I think it's in my heart, it's in, it's in KD's heart. 
and that ultimately we really depend on Krishna to give us the right word to speak and, and, and to really represent Krishna. Because inevitably, as individual souls, inevitably we have, you know, we are ourselves and we act as ourselves and every soul is unique. And so it's sort of a balance of really being yourself, being true to yourself, at the same time, really trying hard to let Krishna speak for you. And, and, and Krishna knows that we have to be ourselves, but at the same time, I mean, in a situation like that, I would really pray very hard for Krishna to Krishna to kind of give me the right words to speak. Did you want to add anything to that, KD? Yeah, I think this is where some of the really uh, dangerous uh, territory is. I I also have empathy for this situation. I I like to just also, you know, there's often, this is the first question that comes up with abusive gurus. What about the disciples? And unfortunately, the question itself has been used to negate the victims over and over and over. And so the question itself is problematic. What about the disciples? So the question should be, well, what about the guru? What about the victim? Let's ask those those questions. How we support the, the disciples is another thing. Then we also have to address how they attack advocates of the victim or the victim themselves. There's so many victims have been pulled off to be offensive. Really? Yes. Because mm -hmm. why would you offend and criticize a great devotee, Maharaj, oh, and speak such lies? Oh, God. So this is, that's why I'm saying the most important first. So if we talk about first responders to a victim or to in a situation, first responders need to one, acknowledge the victim. It has to come first. Not the institution, not the guru, not the disciples. They're always talked about first. What about the victims? Period. That is number one. And then we can create empathy and space for healing for everyone. But when we understand the impact of abuse, including spiritual abuse, including what happens to a, a victim once they speak, once they speak and they're the secondary levels of, of abuse start to happen, and this is where some of the spiritual abuse happens. They're told, you know, not to criticize. They're told, uh, you know, the great devotees and all of those things. And so the whole thing is gaslit in the name of Krishna. And so then the name of Krishna is weaponized. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. The words of scriptures and the Gita are weaponized to crush the victim. You know, yeah, yeah, hearing from you, I, 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 an idea came to my mind where I'd like to balance what I said about, I mean, we should have compassion, obviously, for disciples who were not. And that is really, if a, a truly, let's say, kind of really bad situation is created for the disciples, I think it's a guru's fault. Because, because, because the, the guru, if a guru uses whatever, you know, moral authority, he or she has with the disciples to make it very clear that I appreciate your love for me. Appreciate, you know, you appreciate what I've done for you and preaching or whatever, but all of us, all of us, you know, me and my disciples, this is what KD said. I mean, our first concern has to be for those people. 
who were victimized. And and there are actually many stories, Vaishnav stories, where someone who later became an advanced devotee did really horrible things. I mean, for example, Jayan Madai apparently were raping. I mean, you know, sex abuse were killing, committing murder. I mean, these people were really and, and, and their stories their stories were a Vaishnava and, and I think the more the guru is, let's say, or someone who by some I mean, I understand you think shouldn't be a guru. I understand that, but let's say if someone is in that position, that followers and they did these things, I think it's the leader who has to get way out in front of the curve and 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 insist that the disciples first think of the victims. And 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 ironically, I think and, and this, I think, if I can just be honest, I think one of the failings of some of the people who are, were widely perceived as not being really profoundly repentant. And that is that I think ultimately a true disciple, seeing that this person I'm following and who did very bad things earlier in his life is actually profoundly and, and, and in the first instance concerned with the victims. And I think if the guru sets that example that our first that your first concern should not be with me, it should actually be with these people. And for the rest of my life, you know, I, I'll be very ashamed of this. And you know, there, there there's actually a lot of this in Vaishnava history where someone became some kind of prominent figure and and just profoundly regretted and was ashamed of earlier activities. I mean, there's even Vaishnava songs. That, te that teach us how to express that because we're, we're Vaishnavas who didn't do horrible things, but they ex they express in very, very heavy self-deprecating language how ashamed they are. And and, and so there is a model for that. And, and, and so if it is a real conflict for the disciples, in a sense, I think it's a guru who again failed to really instill in the followers first compassion for the victim. So I really like your point, KD. It's, uh, it's, I, I'm really glad that, uh, that I heard all these points you're making. Thank you. Here's an, another question. I'm again, mindful it must be about nine o'clock in the evening or something for you. So please do so signal when you, you. I'm gonna give you my regular rate. I'm not gonna charge you overtime. <laughs> I'm very merciful. Very merciful. Thank you. Um, again, this is a version of a point that someone's making in a question. In instances of historic abuse, where it's actually very difficult to... Uh, the standard of evidence, I believe, for instance, in civil prosecution is not the same as in criminal prosecution. I'm There's sorry, a preponder could you repeat that? The, the, the burden of evidence? The, 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 yeah, the standard of evidence in civil law is a little different than it is with criminal law. In criminal law, where there are very exacting sentences and so on, um, beyond reasonable doubt is the standard of proof. Whereas preponderance of evidence is the civil uh, case. So hence the OJ Simpson was found guilty in a civil court, couldn't kind of get that verdict uh, otherwise, um, but on technicalities. So almost a bias in favor of the accused in that sense. Um, and I believe preponderance of evidence is the same ICPO uh, standard. And if we think about it, yes, there's always going to be stigma attached to somebody who's even accused, what to speak of, found guilty. 
But in essence, most of the time, the punishment, I'm not even sure if it's truly a punishment, is more of a timeout. It's more of an insulation. Can't give class, um, maybe can't reside on an ISKCON property and so on. So do you have a view as to how, particularly with historic cases, Vaishnavas can properly weigh up evidence and decide what is appropriate and even what kind of restrictions are appropriate and so on? I would say that we shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel. And that um, in these cases, like for example, in, in the case that, that I mentioned where I was dissatisfied with the procedure, because I know the accused person, I would not want to, I would want to distance myself from the procedure. I mean, the last thing in the world I would want to do is try to influence the outcome. And all I'm asking for is that, you know, qualified ISCON people, and here's a jurisprudential thing, because someone may have a master's degree in this or that related to child care or child abuse, but inevitably, because they're, 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 you know, there's evidence presented, there's a judgment, there's punishment, and so on. This is the field of this is a judicial field, and so all I ask for is that the leaders of ISCON study what sort of a consensus standards are in civilized societies. And so, if, as you said, it turns out that for um, civil cases, it's preponderance. In criminal cases, it's beyond reasonable doubt, and so on. I don't feel qualified to to reinvent jurisprudence, and, and so all I want to see is a professionalism where ISCON meets appropriate standards of justice. And if that happens, it's none of my business what the judgment is, because I'm not the judge. I don't want to be the judge. That's all I want. Hmm. I know ICPO, despite it being very early in the morning in the UK, ICPO are watching, and hopefully they'll also clarify precisely their uh, their position on these things, because um, I think it's a very reasonable uh, question you've asked. Um, I have a question here, or a comment here from Saraswati. Um, I've noticed leaders will sometimes interfere in child protection cases to defend the abuser, but I've never seen or heard of leaders interfering to defend the victim, Marat. Have you yourself? ever seen leaders interfering. So that sense, and I think KD brought it up as well, of where loyalties seem to lie. It does seem that we see many more instances of misplaced compassion than we do of, let's say, over-representing the child's interest. But again, um, that you would, Yeah, that would, uh, thank you, sir. That would correlate with general studies of some of the weaknesses and the uh, problems with oligarchies. And um, I thank God, you know, I mean, I I was not personally involved in those things. I was off the GBC for a long time. And, you know, the, uh, the charge that um, when compassion has been shown, it's more often to the accused perpetrator than it is to the victim. Um, it seems, I mean, to me, just looking at it from a distance, I think there's some truth in that. And uh, I, I, so, yeah, so I, I have nothing to critique in what Sarah Spotty said. I think it's a, a very important observation. 
Do you have a view as to why it's more prevalent in religious circles? We see this problem in other churches and other religions where the instinct is to protect Father so-and-so and, you know, re relocate him or petition on his behalf. Uh, is there something about religious sentiments which potentially cloud judgment even more than in secular society? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. I mean, I'm that's... playing catch up. <laughs> I mean, KD, do you want to jump in on that one? Uh, I think that there is a when we talk about absolute power corrupts absolutely. I can't think of any position more powerful than guru, actually, because this is like the god power. Uh, and they have incredible influence on people's personal lives and you know life views and all of that so i think so we were uh discussing this a couple of us um vigilante group <laughs> <laughs> um so the number one offense to the holy name is to consider one's guru like an ordinary man. So when we, I think that what happens is that fundamentalism comes into play. We start to weaponize religion as power is really what's happening, right? And so, and then the scriptures are being used to entrench power and disciples and all of that. So. There, that's why the public trust, there's no checks and balances for Iskand. And there's intense public trust placed in these men with no checks and balances. Oh, regarding, just so I can say one thing regarding checks and balances. Interestingly, there's, I think, a very significant way in which Iskand is actually not following the God-given uh, social system. And and in a sense, Prabhupada set it up that way that, um, because Krishna says in the Gita, Chatur Varnya Mayastrishtam, that I created the system for Varnas. I believe it is quite intentional on Krishna's part. And as everyone knows, you know, I speak for Krishna. But I, I, I think it was. <laughs> who, who says Guru? <laughs> I can't believe some people think Guru. Okay, what did Krishna say? Oh, yeah. So um, that I, I mean, it, it's clear that Krishna has separated the two most powerful communities in society, which are the people that have religious authority, which can be very powerful, as we saw in Iran with the Iranian you know, revolution against the Shah, and, um, and the political military wing. In ISKCON, these two powers, you know, the Brahmin and the Kshatriya are merged into one body. And, and if you look at, like, you read Mahabharata and Bhagavatam, you see there, it, it is like a balance where these two powers are separated. And, and it's just like, like in, for example, in the American government, they have, they have three, you know, different branches of government, which was very consciously, intentionally meant to balance them so one branch could not become too powerful. And so Prabhupada, it, it's the first statement in his, in his will that the BBC is the ultimate managing authority for the entire ISKCON, Interesting, he said managing, didn't say like theological or spiritual, but still 
managing as an interpreter mean that because you have to be able to manage everything. So, so I think that's a real challenge for ISCON. How do we, so I would suggest this, going back to you, KD, mm -hmm. as sort of the Joan of Arc of ISCON. I mean, I think that, I think that this NGO idea in a sense provides, because often said like, like the, a free press is the fourth branch of government. I think in ISCON, given that in terms of the official exercise of power in ISCON, that you have the same people being gurus or, you know, having the last word on theological disputes and at the same time having the political power. And by political here, I don't mean in a derogatory sense, I mean the original sense of political, that which concerns the exercise of power. Right. So I think that what's desperately needed, I mean, they have a Sabah now, and that was a step in the right direction. A what? Sabah. Oh. Uh, yeah, it, it's an ISCON. It's a, they, they created like a lower house of government, oh. which can, like, for example, the GBC passes a resolution, and they think, that's crazy. You know, they can like remand it, send it back to the GBC. So then the GBC will, can still pass it, but requires a higher majority, which makes it more difficult to pass. So, but I think powerful NGOs speaking out, I think you shouldn't underestimate the power of, let's say, concerned, articulate citizens and to form groups to, I give you, in fact, in the paper I wrote, I should send you a copy of that. I gave two examples where very important decisions were made by the GBC, but it was like the it was like the tail wagging the dog. It was it was because of pressure. I mean, there was there was a case of um, anyway, there, there was a case of uh, a, a non-ISCON guru, Indian guru, who I'm, I'm quite convinced on this was was uh, having a lot of, more and more influence in ISCON and preaching certain doctrines, which I'm absolutely sure are not exactly our philosophy. And, uh, but I won't get into all the technical theology, but in any case, what happened is the GBC, you know, nothing new here, you know, because there were some senior GBC men all entangled in that and they didn't want to discipline them. And so it just kept drifting and drifting. And what happened is the second and third level of ISCON managers and temple presidents, regional secretaries, sannyasis, they were up in arms. They were outraged and they started circulating petitions and they actually sort of forced the GBC to act. And so if you look at the way ISCON actually has functioned historically in terms of power dynamics and things, it is possible. There were, there were some GBC members who were absolutely hell-bent on destroying Krishna West. I mean, that's, you know, that was their dream in life. And they used all kinds of underhanded techniques to do so, I, I, I might add. And, um, but because there was so much popular support, they had to deal with it. They didn't want to discipline these very big ISKCON leaders, but the lower echelon forced them to do that. And there was another case I just can't remember right now, but so, I mean, historical precedent, what we know just, of, you know, from sociology and history. So I really believe that that attitude of kind of like going, you know, like, I know you speak out, I mean, but but I think if you explicitly, consciously want to influence ISCON and you circulate petitions, you know, you give your speeches and, and I mean, you have a bully pulpit because, I mean, there, there's a lot of people that you read. There's a lot of people who respect you, admire you, and listen to you, who frankly would not give that same 
degree of attention to the GBC. And, and so there is a diversity. There are different um, um, constituencies. And, and I think you and other devotees like you who, you know, are articulate, principled, intelligent, uh, can really play a powerful role in ISKCON. It's not just about the ultimate managing authority. It, 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 it is possible to change ISKCON by persuading. And that's the Brahminical system. That, you know, and I, I still think you're a Brahmini in many ways, but anyway. <laughs> I was hoping for a queen, you know? <laughs> we can negotiate that. You know, I'm. It doesn't really matter. I, the point isn't that. I know, I, I know, I'm joking. So, but 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 I think that, I mean, you are. I was in Prabhupada's room so many times when parents brought their little kids in, because in those days all the kids were, you know, almost all the kids were little. And there was one thing Prabhupada always said, and and it it, it entered my heart and I never forgot it. He would look at us like really transfix us in his gaze, and he would say, "Take care of them. They are the future hope." Mm-hmm. And so based on Prabhupada's instruction to me many times, I see you as the future home. And so I would just encourage you and other good devotees like you, we need a strong citizen voice in ISKCON, you know, loyal opposition. We need NGOs. And, and please don't underestimate the power that you can have by persuading good devotees. And, and I'm going to tell the GPC you told me that. What's that? <laughs> I said, I'm going to tell the GBC you told me that. That if I make enough noise, they'll listen to me. <laughs> well, actually, they're already going to find out because I already, you know. They already, they already know me because I make noise. So. And they know me. <laughs> and I've already incriminated myself so deeply in this little podcast. <laughs> well, on that note, Maharaj, uh, at 2 hours 15, I'm inclined to give you whatever's left of your evening back. I want to express a massive thank you. Srila Prabhupada often talks about preaching is taking a risk. And I always thought, well, yeah, maybe if you're behind the Iron Curtain or something. But it does strike me that this in this day and age of cancel culture and so on, even taking a position on anything potentially puts you at great risk. So thank you for stepping into the fray on such an emotionally charged issue and providing some real thoughts. We're hoping that more and more ISKCON leaders will follow your cue and and realize that this is not an issue that we can keep sort of brushing under the carpet. It's not an issue that we need to, you know, avoid because it's deeply uncomfortable. Um, and it uh, often re- exposes the shadow side of the movement that we just don't want to look at. So thank you for being so generous in terms of allowing us to perhaps breach protocols from time to time and talk <laughs> over the top of you. Oh, it, it, would, it wouldn't be funny if there were, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be fun if there were no breaches. You know, I say like, KD, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you breaching? And yeah, so- <laughs> well, that's, whole, that's, that's why I, I always appreciate it because you don't mind if I talk over you a little. And, um, you know, it is really an honor to have an opportunity to have proper discourse. And I feel like we have made some progress in finding common ground and agreement and progress. So that's really important. And a massive thanks to you as well, KD. Sorry, Maharaj, you finish. No, I just wanted to thank both of you. Damodar, you were, uh, you know, for someone that likes to talk like me, you were a perfect host. And, um, 
And of course, KD, I'm really happy that we're, you know, we can do this again. And and I'm really grateful to, you know, to you both for facilitating this. And and I've learned, I mean, I, I think I have a better understanding now than I did before. And uh, yeah, I'm happy that we're talking to each other. Let's hope that the comments continue to pour in because there's a lot that's going on there. Um, thank you also, KD, for make, making such a passionate case for the voices that are often just not represented in these things. That's uh, really important. So I propose that um, Ananda Leela perhaps puts us back into purgatory and uh, lets our <laughs> listeners go and we can uh, sign off. Thank you all for watching. Please. Um, Please keep it civil and and impassioned in the uh, comment sections. Hare Krishna. Jai Kedi. Thank you, Prabhu.